This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Find us over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. I'm a country boy with the soft side. My heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. I'm your host, Rudy Gets It. I'm here to inspire you to get out on the trail. You putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you still on the couch? Come on, let's go on a backpacking trip. I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. Next on the Cascade Hiker Podcast, what's your name and where are you from? Uh, my name is J.R. Harris, and I'm from New York City, land of the great hikers. <laughs> ah, that's right, yeah, right downtown New York City, yeah. Uh, right. I've been reading your book way out there, man, and uh, to be honest with you, it's a good title, and uh, I really kind of want to get to the roots. I know you kind of start there in the book as well. Um, uh, kind of talk about you know where you're from and um, how you almost become like an unlikely hiker. Well, yeah, I'd say uh, unlikely hiker is probably uh, a standard description if you're growing up in New York City. Uh, I grew up here, and uh, you know we lived in a uh, city housing project, and I had no clue about hiking and the mountains or anything, you know, I was a city kid growing up in the street. And uh, when I got to be a teenager, my parents uh, signed me up in the Boy Scouts to kind of get me out of the city during the summer. And they sent me away to uh, Boy Scout camp up in the Catskill Mountains. And uh, that pretty much changed everything. You know, uh, I learned how to, uh, you know, use a compass, read a map, uh, make a fire in pouring down rain, track animals, you know, learn what you could forage and eat and all kinds of skills. Not that I would use them back in the city, but it just made me feel more confident uh, uh, and and more curious to find out what it's like out there. Yeah, so, um, so then based on that, I mean, obviously your parents didn't really uh... – necessarily take you out hiking but they definitely helped you get inspired by 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 putting you in there right yeah it's absolutely true they uh they didn't know any more about hiking than i did except that you put one foot in front of the other uh and they didn't know uh that much about uh you know about the mountains or anything either but uh they knew that i would be away i would be in a uh, good environment fresh air that my uh, activities would be supervised and that I'd be uh, in a healthy atmosphere and learning some, some new skills. So they went for it. Yeah. So your, your family and friends uh, probably knew you were a part of that uh, growing up and stuff. But uh, uh, even then um, something I notice uh, in people in my life, even um, you know, whenever you say you're going to go out and do something uh, kind of on your own or maybe even just with one other person, uh, people like to put their own fears on you. And, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit because, uh, you know, you start out the book talking about a, a huge expedition over to circle Alaska. Um, and it's, it's a really cool story, but, um, you know, were, were there people in your life that kind of thought, man, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the long answer is hell yeah. Um, you know, back in 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 1966 when I did that trip, uh, you know, Alaska had only been a state for a, a couple of years. Uh, it became a state in 1957. I mean, so 
No oil had been discovered there. Very few people lived there. Nobody really went there. It was just a place that everybody heard of, but it was just, you know, so far away and so remote. And, uh, you know, nobody ever really thought about visiting there, you know. And so when I suddenly announced that, you know, I think I'm going to go to Alaska, and people are saying, what do you want to do that for? You know, that's crazy. And then I said, you know, well, I, I, I like to drive to the end of the northernmost road in the Western Hemisphere where all the other vehicles would be behind me and there wouldn't be another vehicle between me and the North Pole. <laughs> and then people said, you know, now I know you're really crazy. <laughs> you know, it's bad enough you want to go to Alaska, but, you know, uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, some people were really kind of intrigued by it. You know, they... Uh, they wouldn't do it, you know, they wouldn't want to come with me or anything, but uh, uh, they they were curious about it. You know, I guess the the overwhelming feeling was, that's a weird idea, you know, but probably you'd be the guy who would do it. And I must say that my my parents were, uh, were supportive of it, actually. Uh, you know, my dad liked the idea that I'd be driving up there because he's the one who taught me how to drive. <laughs> and my mother was just the kind of woman who was like, hey, you know, if that's your dream, you know, go ahead and live the dream, you know. And so uh, uh, that was really that was really how it started. But, yeah, everybody thought it was kind of strange. You know, even looking back now, I think it, it was kind of strange. But it sounded like a good idea at the time. Yeah. And so do you think that that kind of kicked off uh, your style then of adventures? Because because um, because one thing I'm noticing in the book that, that just kind of goes throughout the whole the whole book is just how uh, unique and different each each adventure seems to be. Yes, that uh, that trip was a turning point um, when I was up in the Yukon Territory. I remember pulling off to the side of the road. And getting out of my car and just looking at the mountains in the background and saying, wow, you know, uh, what I really like to do is just find out what's in those valleys behind the mountains and what's in the rivers back there and, you know, what kind of glaciers are there, what kind of wildlife is living there. I like to be able to just, you know, be able to walk through there and, and find out on my, on my own you know, what the wilderness is really like. And, and uh, you know, driving was fine, but, you know, you're confined to the road and, you know, you have to kind of pretty much stick uh, wherever the road takes you. And I wanted to go beyond that. And so uh, having learned, uh, you know, the skills that I, that I needed from my Boy Scout days and then having the curiosity to... Uh, uh, get in my car and see what it's like to drive to Alaska. You know, those two things came together on that trip and set the stage for, you know, the other, you know, 50 years or more of, of trekking that I've done since then. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Um, well, for somebody that, that likes adventure and uh, really appreciated all of your stories, uh, and, 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 and some humor in there as well and stuff and, uh, some, some unique situations. Um, I, I would hate to pick a favorite, but, um, I was really, uh, intrigued 
and excited about some of the history and interviews that you brought in to, um, you know, your uh, story about the Canole Heritage Trail. Yes. Uh, man, I'd really like to hear, um, you know, <laughs> where you started, you you know, you found this article, this backpacker, uh, up into, you know, this this gentleman that you were able to find with the history of it. And uh, can, you, can you kind of talk about that? Because that one really stuck out to me. Yeah, you know, so that that adventure, which was a 233-mile solo backpack in the uh, Northwest Territories, was uh, the longest single uh, trip that I ever I ever took. And the way I found out about it was uh, riding on New York City subway train uh, in the middle of the night one night, um, coming home from you know, hanging out at. Uh, on the weekend, and and there was a, a backpacker magazine sitting on the on the seat of this train, and you know I I don't know, man. It was like uh, the the planets must have been lined up that night for me to see that, you know. But uh, I started reading it, and it was about a uh, a pipeline that had been constructed during World War II to get gas gasoline up to Alaska. Uh, because the uh, U.S. Army was concerned uh, about a Japanese invasion um, through uh, through the Northwest there, and and since oil hadn't been discovered yet in in Alaska, the closest oil field was all the way over on the Mackenzie River, about 550 miles away, and so the Army attempted to build a pipeline from the Mackenzie River all the way up to Whitehorse and the Yukon to a refinery, and. Uh, you know, long story short, they they've completed the the pipeline, but by that time the threat of invasion was gone, and the pipeline was too expensive to maintain, so they just kind of shut it down, and um, and nobody's ever heard of it. It was a fifty thousand man project to build. It took two years, cost three hundred million dollars, and nobody ever heard of it. But now that it's gone, uh, it's possible to walk the route that the pipeline was uh, was first laid out on. And uh, that route is called the Canol, meaning Canadian uh, oil, Canol, the Canol Heritage Trail. And I decided, yeah, you know, I need to go up there and, and see it uh, because they, one of the reasons being that the among the troops that were working on that uh, project were uh, a battalion of African-American soldiers from Louisiana who had never been to the far north, didn't know where they were going. And uh, they went up there to, uh, to work on basically moving supplies uh, up to the far north. And uh, me being African-American and my dad being a World War II vet, you know, that was an added impulse and an added incentive to, uh, to go up there and do it. So it kind of combined my 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 kind of curious nature with my uh, love of uh, adventure to uh, to go up there. Very very few people have ever heard of that trail. Very few people uh, have done that trail. Uh, but it's it's really a fantastic um, uh, environment up there. The the nobody lives there. It's about thirty thousand square miles, totally uninhabited, and uh, you know, and it's a tough trip. You know, there, there. It's not a national park or a public land, so it's not, 
patrolled by anybody or no rangers. I mean, once you go up there, you run your own. But uh, for somebody who uh, uh, who really likes to backpack and and really wants an adventure, um, I would definitely recommend that Cannell Trail. Fantastic. Yeah, um, man, and and just the the whole the whole way it all kind of tied together for you. Um, it just so to me, it just made the story so much better and um, the trip and and almost like a short plan trip too. Some of your other trips almost seem like you you have these uh, maybe longer goals and uh and that one maybe it was just my perception seemed to kind of come come together pretty quick well you know i that that article in backpacker magazine you know had me hooked before i even got off the subway train that night i said i'm going there you know i i did my homework i found out more information about it um i i planned the trip out um I'd never been in that part of the world before, but uh, yeah, it all came together. And when I when I came back from that trip, um, I was so curious that I wanted to see if I could find any of those soldiers who were up there. And just by chance, I happened to find one guy who was living in New Jersey, who was the last uh, known. Uh, a uh, survivor of the soldiers that went up there who was about 87, 88 years old at that time. And uh, I was able to contact him, and I actually went out and visited him a couple of times and listened to his story about what it was like in 1941, 1942, when uh, he was a young man and was sent up there with his, uh, with his battalion to, uh, to work in those harsh conditions. Um, and, you know, he was a soldier in the war, but he was nowhere near the front. And it was, uh, uh, it was just a, a labor, uh, intensive job up there and, and to share, you know, for him to share his memories and for me to listen to him based on my experience, having walked that route, it was, it was a fantastic, uh, experience. Yeah. And, um, and for me, uh, you know, I love, uh, stories about hiking, but I also, uh, you know, absolutely love to hear about history. And so to tie those two together and, um, I, I wonder if there's, uh, you know, very much written about that or, or, uh, you know, this, uh, Sergeant Jake, Jake Toller, I believe his name is, um, I wonder yeah. if his story was ever told anywhere else or, or if somebody that wanted to find that would have to, to, to read a book about adventure, uh, in, in in modern day hiking to to hear about it, you know. Yeah, it's a uh, it's one of those stories that remains untold. I mean, first of all, the whole pipeline episode is a story that remains untold. Very few people even know that that pipeline was ever built. And you know, when you think about it, that that pipeline cost more money to build than the Hoover Dam. You know, it was a bigger project than the Panama Canal, and nobody's ever heard of it. Then it's, uh, it's it's not much of a stretch to understand that the individual stories of people who were up there are probably not uh, heard uh, heard of either. I tell you a side uh, quick side story on that was that uh, in the course of trying to find uh, Jake Toller, the sergeant who was working up there, I uh, I met a a, uh, a Canadian uh, gentleman who actually. Uh, grew up 
in that part of the uh, of the country, in the Northwest Territories. He was of uh, First Nations or um, Native descent, and he was uh, trying to find out information, the same kind of information I was trying to find out, but for a different reason. He wanted to find out because apparently among those African-American soldiers and also the Caucasian soldiers that worked up there, um, a lot of them had... Uh, relations with some of the local women, and these women had kids, and when the soldiers pulled out, they the kids were left there to be raised by their mom, and he was one of the kids at, back in those days, and uh, he had photos of some of the soldiers and some of the women uh, who were living in his community, and he wanted to try to connect with uh, any of the soldiers from his perspective as a uh, uh, as a native uh, gentleman living and growing up back there. And so uh, between the two of us, we connected with uh, Jake Toller. And, and this particular gentleman, this Canadian guy, was also a playwright. And he decided to write a play about a black guy from New York who goes up to the pipeline uh, because his father worked on the pipeline and he uh, knew that his father had some kids up there and he wanted to go up and see if he could find the kids. So it's kind of a combining real life with fiction. Um, and he, uh, he actually wrote a, uh, a play about it that appeared, I think, somewhere out in Western Canada. Wow, that's cool, man. I, I like that. That's like a whole nother brings a whole nother part to it. Um, you know, you uh you know you know, talking about the, the highlights that we that I just asked you about, um, doesn't even go into I wanna I wanna talk to uh the listener out there, um, doesn't even go into the whole story. I mean, your description of your, your hike alone was was amazing and some of the stuff you saw and encountered and the kind of happen chance uh maybe that's the wrong word but anyway uh i really i want to i want to i don't want to leave it there for the for the listener you know the, the story has a lot more to it sixmoondesigns.com they've got uh, a lot of backpacks to choose from some fanny packs and stuff uh even some some harness vests uh, go over and check those out also um, i'm excited about the tents the shelters uh the tents and the tarps and uh there's just there's a lot to choose from uh, one of the ones uh, they've got some good videos on there, and I was I was actually just I bought the uh, Lunar Solo, and I was checking out the Lunar Duo, and man, this this looks like a cool tent as well. It does take two trekking poles rather than the one trekking pole for the other, um, but anyway, yeah, just go check out their tents, surf around the website. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about was a seam ceiling. Yeah, they do take that. Let me tell you, you got to set this tent up anyway in your yard or or you know right when you get it to kind of check it out. So why not seam seal it while you're sitting there and you can play around with it while it's drying and it actually dries real quick. And anyway, seam sealing is not a big deal. So go over to sixmoondesigns.com and follow them on Instagram too. Tell them the Cascade Hiker podcast sent you. One thing uh, that the, uh, uh, you know, you talk about with the, the soldiers and what they went through was the cold. And, uh, I kind of wanted to change direction with that because, uh, um, you know, you, you've been in some, some pretty, I mean, you put yourself into some situations like, uh, uh, 
Uh, one of the ones that stuck out like that with the cold and stuff was like with the polar bears up there. And, uh, and man, <laughs> uh, but, but, but they, but those soldiers kind of had, had, um, uh, had something when, when, with those, those native or, or first nations, um, they hadn't seen African Americans before. And, uh, and you kind of had an experience without yourself too, right? Oh, yeah, I've had a couple of experiences like that. I I am a uh, social psychologist by education. I have a degree in psychology, and uh, and by profession, uh, I'm a uh, market researcher, so I'm interested in people. And I combine my uh, interest in people with my love of uh, backpacking in remote places where I can uh, sometimes put together a trip uh, to some place uh, very remote, where there are actually people living there. For example, the Inuit people, or Maoris, or Aborigines, or people living in Peru and the Andes, living up in the mountains. And uh, what I do is, I uh, before I leave, I study their culture, their background, their religion. You know what they eat for breakfast. And uh, but then it's not enough. I need to actually go there and see for myself how they live. So, okay, I, I don't know a single soul there. I've never been there before. Uh, I'm not being sent there by a museum or a university. I'm just a guy with a curious mind and, uh, and a little room on my credit card. And so I put together a, an expedition, and I just show up. And people are like, who are you? <laughs> you know, and what are you doing here? Why did you come here? You know, and so I tell them what I told you. And they say, oh, wow, you know, uh, uh, our culture, you know, our culture is dying. You know, everybody tells me the same thing, you know, because the kids don't want to stay here. They don't want to learn the skills. They don't want to learn the language. They don't want to learn about our culture. You know, most of them move away as soon as they're old enough. And so, you know, our culture is slowly fading away because nobody's really interested in it. And then here you show up, you know, just a, just a guy because you're curious about what we what we do and who we are and and they really appreciate it they really uh, uh are very friendly and really helpful i mean most of them tell me hey you know we want to go to new york <laughs> you know and you coming up here <laughs> uh you know and and you're the first black guy we ever saw uh in in real life they used to say years ago you were the first one i ever saw now they say you're the first one i ever saw in real life you know meaning that they have satellite discs on it, you know, they may have seen, uh, you know, they watch basketball games or sports or whatever. But yeah, they're, you know, they're as curious about me as I am about them. And, uh, you know, I tell them that uh, not only am I curious that I'm, I, I'm here, I said, but I'm not going to be any kind of a, any kind of a strain on you. I said, I have my own tent I got all my own equipment. I have all my own food. You know, I'm not really asking for anything. I don't need anything. I just want to be a fly on the wall, you know, for a couple of days and and see how you live. And of course, if you if you have anything that needs to be done, you need an extra helper or whatever. You know, I, I'm I'm more than happy uh, to help you out because everybody's got you know chores and things that need to be done. There's just not enough time for people. And so what happens is uh, after a day or two, uh, the newness wears off and they go back to their usual lifestyle. And 
you know, many times they've said, hey, you know, don't, Jay, don't, don't sleep in your tent. Come in, you know, stay with us in our cabin, stay with, with the community. And uh, I've made some really good friends over the years with people who live, uh, who are living off the grid back in the day before there even was a grid, you know, before there was off the grid. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been some really good uh, uh, learning experience and also good life experiences for me. Yeah, I really like that. Um, you know, I think there's so many people that travel uh, that almost go to a place to, uh, I don't know, and they, and, and they haven't prepared like that. And, and I think it almost kind of ruins it for the, the locals, you know, and they get that bad impression. But for somebody like you that prepares and, and digs into their cultures and, and, and their history and that kind of thing, that's I think that I commend you for that. <laughs> Well, thank you, you know, and, and it's, you know, the the irony is, you know, when you do it, you, you're actually finding out more about yourself, you know, you're finding out about other people, but you're also finding out about who you are and your curiosity and how you deal with other people and how you care about other people's lifestyles, and uh, and so it's been, it's been a, a, a voyage of, of learning, but, you know, self-learning as well. You know, I believe that all the years that I've been traveling in the wilderness uh, have had an enormous impact on me as a person, and uh, I'm just thankful that I've I've been able to do it all these years and and still doing it. I'm just back uh, about two weeks ago from another trip, so I'm, even though I'm 74 years old now, I you know I'm still out there, still doing solo trips, uh, still. Um, planning my next one wherever that may be i don't know yet but i'll still be doing it so it's been uh it's been a nice long beautiful run uh all these wilderness trips and i i encourage other people to go out there and uh, maybe seek their own destiny or satisfy their own curiosity by doing something similar to that yeah uh, can you talk you know you mentioned that you're 74 years old um and man uh <laughs> From the from the, you know, I believe you went to Alaska in the fifties, um, you know that 60s. was the sixties. Okay, so you went to Alaska in the sixties, um, so that was kind of your first trip away from home and stuff. And man, gear has come a long ways. And I know that wasn't necessarily a hiking trip, but um, I know you did buy a tent on that one. I'm not going to bring it all up because I think people need to, <laughs> people need to read the story. But uh, it, it's comical, man. And um, but but gear's come a long ways and. Uh, you know, and I know there's one spot in the book where you talk about going lightweight in the nineties and, uh, you know, it was a big movement mm-hmm. there. And I like what you said that you said, if I want it, I'm going to carry it. Uh, but where, how's your gear progressed over the years and, and where's it at now? Well, I mean, uh, um, technology, uh, itself has really made advancements, you know, uh, obviously most of it is in gear, but some of it is in clothing. And even technological advances as far as food, freeze-dried food, uh, the type of gas uh, stoves we use now, canisters instead of liquid. Uh, when I first started out, there was nothing. You know, there was no internet. There were no satellite phones. There was no such thing as GPS. Um, once you went out, you were out totally, totally on your own. You're totally out of touch with the rest of the world. And uh, it was just, that was just the way it was. And over the years, uh, everything has been changing. You know, the uh, the gear has been changing. I I used to use a uh, 
an external frame pack. Uh, and I remember taking uh, canned food uh, instead of freeze-dried food, you know, cans of, of pasta uh, and, and, and wool blankets instead of sleeping bags. So over the years, it's, uh, it's really changed. And, and one of the things that, that, that's interesting to me is this whole thing about uh, uh, GPS. You know, I've always been a map and compass guy. Uh, but now we're in a stage where, because of technology, um, you never need to be lost again. I mean, if you're an explorer going back thousands of years, the one, you know, joker in the deck was that when you set out somewhere, you know, in a remote area, that you might get lost, you know. And now if you have, uh, you know, a simple GPS device in your pack or on your wrist, uh, it may never happen. And so it's kind of a a uh, landmark era, if you will, in that regard as far as exploration is concerned, that people don't get lost anymore. But, uh, you know, the whole thing about carrying weight, if you're if you're going solo, your pack's going to be heavier because there's nobody else to share the common uh, gear with, you know. And you can't say, okay, you take the uh, stove and I'll take the first aid kit, and the other guy is going to take the uh, uh, water purification pump, uh, you know. And so you have to just carry it all on your own. And and with this ultralight movement that's out there now, um, people want to take as little as possible. And I can I can totally understand that, but at the same time, you know, maybe I'm just old school, but I need more than just the basics if I'm going to have fun. You know, if I'm going to have a good time, uh, I need to bring stuff that's going to make me comfortable uh, and going to uh, keep me in a good mood. And since I'm the only one that's carrying it, you know, no one can say to me, hey, your pack's too big. You know, you're carrying too much weight. Uh I'm the one that carries it. I'm the one that that enjoys what's in there, uh, and so I take what I what I what I want, uh, and not just what I absolutely need. But uh, combining the two at the same time, um, the the advancements in technology have, uh, in some ways, actually made it possible to travel with uh, with less uh, with less weight because uh, items now. Um, are are more lightweight. Uh, you look at fleece clothing versus the old wool clothing, which was much heavier. You look at the uh, canister fuel instead of the liquid fuel, which is much heavier. So technology has uh, has improved uh, and and gotten into backpacking in in some pretty good ways. But you know, I think some of us uh, uh, old school guys still like it the uh, the original way in many in many ways. Yeah, and uh, and a little cigar too, right? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you kick back at in the evening. You know, I have a uh, maybe a cigar, especially if I'm in a really nice uh, campsite, great view, whatever, and I just want to kick back for a while and relax. Or if it's just the opposite, if it's been a really rough, rotten, lousy, freezing, crazy day. And I finally get to a place where I can make a camp and get myself a hot meal and then maybe kick back and uh, light up a hand roll cigar. I usually take uh, two or three of them on a trip. 
as well as a uh, a pint flask of really old, really good cognac, where I could sip a little mouthful every night before I sit myself up in a sleeping bag. Nice way to uh, end the day, whether the day has been really good or whether the day has just been really, uh, really lousy and when you want to forget. It's got to have those things. You know? <laughs> I like that. Yeah, we all have, uh, you know, our little way of doing that. That's I like. I like how you add that in, and um, you know, you you, uh, you also kind of point that out throughout the book on on kind of whether that was a good day or why you lit it up or whatever. I like the cigar tie-in too. I'm excited about WaymarkGearCo.com. Go over there, check out the packs. Um, you know, seriously, you can customize any pack you want. You can also choose from a lot of packs that he already has made. There's fanny packs uh, coming in the future if they're not out there right now. There's lots of accessories you can add to these packs. My kids like the mesh water bottle packs uh, like for that go right on your shoulder strap there. Um, there's I don't know. These things are, are basically waterproof. Um, you know, we went out on the Olympics and used our uh, one of our backpacks out there, actually two of them, and the – Everything in there, it, it was pouring down rain, like absolutely pouring down rain. Everything was dry in there. And I was glad, too, because I wasn't prepared. I didn't have any kind of a liner or anything to help that out. And these things, uh, Waymark Gear Company packs, they uh, well, they, they held up to the test, even though it wasn't a real test. Anyway, go over to waymarkgearco.com, check it out, follow on Instagram. Thanks a lot. Now back to the show. I have a little private Facebook group for the podcast and people asking questions or whatnot. And, uh, it's pretty hilarious, man. Amos Prudhone, he's a chef. Uh, he, he listens to the podcast and, and, uh, I had put this up, I don't know about like last spring when I started reading the book and, uh, he asked, uh, Oh man, this looks cool. I want to ask him about Tasmania. And then, uh, in the, in the time between he bought the book and read it and he just wanted to tell you he liked the chapter on Tasmania. So anyway, he wanted to ask about that. And, uh, I thought that was kind of funny that uh, since he asked it, he already read it. So I guess he didn't need to ask it anymore. But um, <laughs> it is a unique place to go. Um, it is. And uh, how did because you you've been down in that area a few times. And how do you yes. pick these places? You know, the the um, once you decide you're going to go there, um, you know, when you when you actually pick the specific spot. How do I? How do I pick the place or? Yeah, because I mean, maybe you might say I'm going to go to Tasmania, but then then you refine it down to a certain area. Ah, yeah. Um, well, there's a couple of ways. You know, um, sometimes I just, you know, I'd be looking at, at TV, the National Geographic Channel or, uh, you know, one of those uh, channels like that. And they have a documentary on, you know, a certain country. Uh, for example, I remember watching uh, a program about the uh, caribou migration in uh, northern Alaska, and they had these great shots of the caribou migrating down the valley and uh, these aerial shots, uh, and I was like, whoa, man. You know, now most people looking at that show would say, what? That was pretty nice. You know, now I know a little something about caribou. But I looked at it and I said, I need to go there. Mm. You know, I need to feel what it's like, to, what the weather is like and what the ground is like and what it sounds like to hear them all thundering down the valley and, and, uh, and all that. And so sometimes it's, uh, you know, I'll see something on TV or I'll, I'll read a, uh, you know, a, 
magazine, a backpacker magazine or something like that, and it will mention something about a particular country or a particular hike or something that's in that country that that makes me say, oh, man, you know, I need to go there. That's That's how it all starts when I say to myself, dude, you need to go there. Then I know, you know, that uh, that's when I need to start doing my research. And uh, so in the case of Tasmania, um, I was looking for a place, to, my first trip to Tasmania, the one that's, uh, that I tell about in the book, um, I was looking for a place that was actually a difficult route, you know, uh, because at that age, when I did it back in the 1990s, you know, I thought that I was this, uh, you know, really uh, experienced guy, and, uh, you know, maybe I needed something to kind of prove that uh, that I had my act together. And it, it was a dumb reasoning on my part. I had nothing <laughs> to prove at all. But, uh, you know, what, what struck me about Southwest Tasmania was that it's, it was a difficult route. And I said, yeah, okay, that's enough. I mean, I'm going to go. So I started to uh, read about the Southwest uh, Arthur's, the mountain range down there that it was a World Heritage Site, that it was beautiful, but that it was very harsh. And uh, sure enough, uh, when I got down there, um, you know, I I got my ass kicked on that route. <laughs> it was, was a tough route, but, you know, that's the reason why I call that chapter, Be Careful What You Wish For, you know, because mm. sometimes your curiosity can, uh, <laughs> can get you into a... Uh, into situations where you say, man, what am I doing here? <laughs> How did this happen? This is crazy. But, you know, it's all part of the, um, it's all part of the, the enjoyment of doing it. And, and, you know, eventually if you get back home and the mosquito bites go away and you get yourself a nice hot shower, change your clothes, I find that the, the negative parts, you know, you, you tend to kind of forget about them whereas the, the positive parts really remain uh, much fresher in your memory. And, um, you know, it's, uh, that's just the way it is. I mean, you do remember the bad parts, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, diff- it's different when you remember them after you're home and you're safe and you're warm and you're well-fed and everything is good. Yeah. Um, talk about uh, the Grateful Dead. I, I you know, when you, uh, yeah, I mean, when you when you write these stories or you're you're telling them through your own words, and uh, you know the the chapter you have on the Bob Marshall Wilderness, um, you know the story is so cool, and especially the way you tie it at the end with Tom Flowers' family. Um, but but man, the Grateful Dead part you throw in there, and I'm just like, wow, this is so cool, man. I you know I'm not a, I'm not a huge Grateful Dead fan, but I could appreciate it, you know. Well, you know, I, I've been a deadhead for, uh, you know, since the late 60s, early 70s. And, um, you know, it's another, you know, kind of unusual uh, aspect. You know, there aren't really a lot of black deadheads out there. Uh, at least I hadn't met a whole lot of them. But I'd always loved that band. I've seen them uh, uh, live over 100 times. And so, uh, you know, when I when I go out there, especially like that one, that trip that you're mentioning to uh, Montana and Bob Marshall, um, you know, you meet another deadhead, and they're really surprised, yeah. you know, and uh, and 
you know, it's it's always been great to go to the concerts and listen to the music and everybody was always kind of mellow and and peaceful and was always really nice. And I find that, uh, you know, even today, um, you know, it's it's really the same thing with that band. So it was really kind of a, a special relationship I had with that band and that music. You know, I actually met the band uh, in person <clears throat> um, back in uh, uh, in the early 70s. And um, and so when I met this guy in, in the bar in, in uh, Montana, uh, you know, I knew it was just going to be a great night. He was the bartender, and he was a deadhead. And these are two things that, you know, what could be better than that? You go into a club or a bar, and the bartender's a deadhead, and he's got dead music there. And he was, he was buying me drinks all night. We were singing tunes. And... Uh, it was great, and there, you know, I make a lot of uh, uh, references about the dead and dead music in this book. Um, some of them are are obvious quotes, and others are kind of embedded in the text. Where if you are a grateful deadhead, uh, you read it, you would recognize what I'm saying. Uh. Whereas if you're not, you would just go ahead and read it, you know. And so I kind of did that for all the deadheads out there who may read the book. Uh, They'll appreciate some of the descriptions or whatever where um, I'm saying some kind of a, a dead-related um, sentence in there that they would recognize and they would, it would bring a smile to their face and say, oh, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, that's cool, man. Yeah, a uh, little side note, uh, just kind of a, a randomness. Uh, my sister actually uh, befriended uh, Bob Weir and uh, uh, and she actually sang in his wedding um, – uh, I don't know. Really? Yeah, I think it was maybe eight, ten years ago. I can't remember now how long ago, but yeah, she's an adventurer of a different sorts. Uh, not a hiker, but she gets around the country and around the world and stuff. So yeah, anyway, so that was kind of kind of neat. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was when I was uh, when I was working for Pepsi back in the day, back in the early early seventies, and they had a um, there was a concert in Watkins Glen, New York, with the Grateful Dead the band and the Allman Brothers. And I decided I wanted to go there. But since I had been to Woodstock the year before and in the rain and all the mud, I didn't want to do that again. And so I tried to get a motel in Watkins Glen. And so I called up and I told them that I was the Pepsi guy who was going to be working a concert. And I worked for the company in marketing, but I wasn't the guy covering the, the event. <laughs> So they said, oh, okay, okay, there's one room. We can give you this room in Watkins Glen at, at this motel. And when I showed up there, that was the motel that the band was, the three bands were staying at. And it was the, the three bands and their roadies and their wives, girlfriends, and a couple of kids, and me. <laughs> and they were like, how did you get in here? So I told them, you know, that I kind of scammed my way in by telling them that I work for PepsiCo. And they said, oh, that's really cool, man. Come and hang with us. So for the whole weekend. While we uh, while they did that outdoor concert, we stayed in the same um, same motel there. And uh, after the concert, you know, and during the day, sometimes we'd be back there. I I have to say I can't <laughs> remember all the things that were happening because so many things were happening. <laughs> but uh, I can say it was a pleasant experience. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I can only I imagine. Can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome man I, well i can sit here and talk to you all day uh jr i'm sure you got you got things going on i just really want to um encourage people 
to go check out the book and um, you know uh, bring it up one more time. It's Way Out There by J. Robert Harris. So um, you know, uh, Adventures of a Wilderness Trekker. Yes, subtitle. It's good, man. It's 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 really good. It it, right. it keeps my interest for sure. Um, uh, each little story. So I appreciate you chatting with oh, us. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the Cascade Hiker Podcast. Okay, Rudy. Very nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to join the Patreon page. Find me at patreon.com slash Cascade Hiker Podcast. Also, hit me up uh, with an email, Rudy at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. Find me on Facebook. My Facebook page is Cascade Hiker Podcast. Twitter, find me at N underscore Cascade Hiking. And I'm Cascade Hiker Podcast on Instagram. Thanks, Whiskey Fever, for letting me use this track here, Tall Grass, off their album, Gonna Wake Up This Whole Town. Go find them at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Hey, see you next week. You were sweet like honey on a heartbeat. You were fine like wine and sunshine. I could feel you coming on strong. Could never be wrong. Could never be wrong. See her laying down in the tall grass. Playing mandolin in a white dress. So come running when I hear that song. It could never be wrong. It could never be wrong. Where you want to run, baby, I'll run. I would leave this world for